Well, hello everyone. We are now in the month of June. We finally made it to summer, and we also have a change in the COVID restrictions. We're now in the yellow phase, so hopefully we can resume to normal life here in just a few more weeks. We're still working on how to communicate our return plan to you. You'll get that in the next couple of days. We're going to continue in our teaching in John. We'll be in John chapter 12, continuing with where we left off last time. And if you remember, we looked at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He has entered on a donkey's colt, which fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah. There are thousands upon thousands of people that have gathered to see him. They have ushered him into the city with great fanfare. It's a parade-like atmosphere. They are cheering his his entrance. They are waving palm branches. They are shouting the word or the name Hosanna which means save now, I pray. And so as there is this incredible celebration, as Jesus enters into the city, there is this intent of the crowd to inaugurate what they expect to be his messianic rule, thinking that Jesus would come in, that he would establish his kingdom, that he would overthrow the Romans and restore Israel back to an independent nation and forever free them from the yoke of the Romans who had ruled over them for so many years. The thinking, the rationale was this. If Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead, the one that was in the tomb for four days, it couldn't be too difficult then to overthrow the Romans. So unlike the previous attempts of the people to inaugurate Jesus' rule, to establish him as the king on the throne, Jesus this time does not rebuff their efforts. In this previous passage, we have seen that the Pharisees are outraged that Jesus has so many following him, and their statement in verse 19 says, the world is going after him, and that indicates not only the fear that the Pharisees had, but it also gives an idea of the size of the crowd of people who were cheering the entrance as Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem. Now, as we move into the remainder of chapter 12, we'll see dialogue that exists, and it's obvious that Jesus has entered into the temple area, and he is going to address the people, and this is going to be the final public plea that Jesus is going to make, at least what is recorded in the Gospel of John. As we look at chapter 13 and following, we'll see that Jesus is going to focus almost exclusively on his disciples. So let's read together, beginning in verse 20, and we're going to go all the way down through verse 33. Here's what God's word says to us today. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Verse 23, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who hates, excuse me, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father father will also honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this power, for this purpose, I came to this hour. 
Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of him. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So we're going to look at this passage of scripture in four major sections. And the first one that we're going to look at is the request. We see the request stated in verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. So the first thing that we see here is that there are the Greeks that have come and have sought out an audience with Jesus. It isn't precisely known who these Greeks were, and it is never stated in the passage precisely what it is they wanted to see Jesus about. So some believe that letter A, that these were converts to Judaism. This isn't the most favorable assumption for a couple of reasons. Number one, John doesn't call them Hellenistic Jews as they are called in Acts 6.1. It just simply says some Greeks were coming up to worship. We'll also see a little bit later in the passage that these individuals, these Greeks, came to Philip and then Philip was the one that went to Jesus to communicate this request by the Greeks. The implication is that these Greeks who were not Jews, who were not converted to Judaism, were not allowed to pass the barrier that prohibited the entrance of the Gentiles. They couldn't pass into the temple proper. They had to stay on the outskirts. So most dismiss the idea that these were converts to Judaism. So let it be some believe that these were just simply God-fearers. These were God-fearing men. They were at least coming to Jerusalem to worship, which means that they were favorable towards Judaism in general. It is perhaps that they had turned away from the pantheon of gods and the emperor worship that was so prevalent in this day among the non-Jew, the Greek. So these individuals have come, they've sought an audience out with Jesus, and we don't know precisely who they are. Who they are. In letter C, some believe that these individual Greeks represent a general Gentile interest in Jesus. So as we look at the passage, and most specifically, there is a contrast between the way the Jewish people, most specifically the religious leaders, are responding to Jesus himself. The Pharisee statement in verse 19 that the whole world is going after him indicates the fear and the concern they have about who Jesus is and about the following that he has. So these Greeks, who are a contrast to the way the religious leaders are receiving Jesus, indicate that they may just represent a Gentile interest in Jesus. We also see that these Greeks that have sought an audience with Jesus disappear from the story. They are not the focus of the story. They simply initiate a response by Jesus to those that are around him, and this is what we look at. These Greeks have come, number two, because they want to talk to Jesus. Verses 21 and 22. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. So this idea that they have come to Philip, most think that perhaps Philip was passing through the temple area 
And these Greeks who were probably from the same region as Philip recognized him and thought that he might be able to introduce them to Jesus so that they could have this conversation with him. It's possible that these Greeks were affected by the cleansing of the temple that is recorded in Mark chapter 11 that John does not make mention of. And it's possible that they just wanted clarification from Jesus about the things that he said during this cleansing and why he did what he did. This terminology that they wanted to see Jesus shouldn't be understood, that they wanted to see him, that they were hoping to see him perform some kind of a miracle. It indicates that they wanted to sit down with him, they wanted to have an audience with him, and they sought to have a dialogue with Jesus. But we don't ever hear exactly what it is the Greeks want. It isn't mentioned, and they disappear from the narrative. So there's a contrast to the native Jews, the Pharisees. The significance is the non-Jews are seeking the Messiah in a way that is different from the religious leaders who were long waiting for the coming of their Messiah. This idea that these Greeks represent Gentile interests in general fits very well with the contrast of the way the religious leaders were receiving Jesus. Jesus has indicated over and over again that the Messianic kingdom was not just about the nation of Israel, but it was about God's intended plan for the entire world. We see Jesus indicate this in John 10:16. He says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. John 11, 51 and 52, Jesus says, excuse me, it is said here that now he did not say this on his own initiative, but Caiaphas, being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now, it was God's intention that Jesus, the Messiah, would be proclaimed not just to the nation of Israel, but to the entire world. This truth is implied in the covenant that God made with Abraham. We read in Genesis 12:3, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Again in Genesis 17:5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Even though the Jews and the religious leaders had this information, they never fully understood God's intended plan for Jesus' messianic rule to extend beyond the borders of Jerusalem into the entire world. That indicates to us that there are American Christians, there are Chinese Christians, there are Korean Christians, there are Christians from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, and this was God's intended purpose for his Messiah to rule globally, not just locally, for the nation of Israel. Now, the second major point that we have in our outline is the response. The response that comes from Jesus as he is aware that there are some Greeks who would like to talk with him. We see this in verse 23a. Jesus answered them. Now, who is the them that Jesus is talking to? It could be Andrew and Philip who have communicated the message. It could be the crowd that is gathered around Jesus in some part of the temple. It could be that the Greeks are now actually there 
but the text never says that they were taken to Jesus and that he actually had sat down and had a conversation with them. There is no further mention of the Greeks in the passage, which confirms they are not the focus. The focus is what Jesus is going to say about himself and about the intended messianic rule that has been initiated as he has entered into Jerusalem. Now, we don't know what the Greeks wanted to see Jesus about, and it is probable that what they wanted to know, what they wanted to hear from Jesus, is going to be communicated to us by Jesus because he knows the hearts of every man. So Jesus' response to this general inquiry by the Greeks is this, in verse 23b, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So the first thing that Jesus says in his response is this, My time has come. It is time for the cross. It is time for redemption. It is time for reconciliation between God and man. It is time for me to do what the Father has sent me into the world to do. It is time for my death, my resurrection, my exaltation, and in short, it is time for my glorification. Now, as the crowd around Jesus would hear this declaration that my time has come, it would be very easy for them to conclude that Jesus was on the verge of establishing a physical rule amongst the nation of Israel. He was about to establish his earthly reign is probable what those around him understood Jesus to mean. After all, they had the words of the prophet Daniel who said in seven, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, as Daniel communicates this vision that he saw, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, as the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people in general understood these prophetic words of Daniel, they expected the messianic rule to be a physical, literal kingdom that would be established and restore the nation of Israel to its, to its reign of glory over all the world. But Jesus' next statement would absolutely shatter any misunderstanding about what his glorification really meant. Jesus says, my time has come, not for a physical earthly kingdom, but number two, I must die. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now we have that very common introduction to a very truthful, a very solemn saying, when Jesus says, truly, truly, it emphasized extreme importance of what is about to be said. And so Jesus gives this analogy of a kernel of wheat that needs to be planted into the ground, and when it is planted into the ground, it dies, and through its death, a bountiful, fruitful harvest will come. Now, in an agrarian society like first century Israel, the people would have been very familiar with the meaning of this analogy. 
The Messianic kingdom they longed for would not be ushered in by the overthrow of the Romans, but by the death of Jesus on the cross. My hour has come, I must die. The people of Israel did not anticipate that their Messiah would die. They expected their Messiah to reign politically, militarily over all of the world, and they, as the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, would enjoy a favored position in this earthly rule. But what Jesus says is very different to what they expected. Apart from the cross, apart from Jesus dying, his messianic rule cannot and will not be established. This was the message that he shared on the road to Emmaus, as recorded in Luke chapter 24. Verses 25 through 27. He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. All the words of old, all the things that have been said by the prophets indicated that a Messiah was going to come. But he wasn't going to come in the way they thought or expected or had been taught. He was coming to be a spiritual ruler to set them free from the burden and the yoke of sin for once for all time. And he was going to establish a spiritual rule that would one day culminate in a physical earthly rule with the establishment of the new Jerusalem when God pulls the plug on our world as we know it, and pronounces judgment on those that have rejected the Son. This is what Jesus has come to do, to establish his spiritual rule. Jesus knew the gospel and his messianic kingdom would spread far beyond the borders of Jerusalem and of the nation of Israel. Jesus knew that the only way anyone could ever truly enjoy fellowship with him was through his atoning sacrifice. And this is the message that he shares with the people who are around him when he learns that the Greeks were seeking an audience with him. Now thirdly, we see the application from this. The application explains how an individual is going to experience the messianic rule that Jesus has come to establish. Verse 25, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. So that phrase to love his life means to prefer my life over the interests of God's kingdom. It is a preference for self-rule. It is a preference for self-will. It is, it is a preference for me doing what I want to do, when I want to do it, the way that I want to do it, as opposed to having an authentic interest in the plans and purposes of God. The idea is that to enter into God's kingdom, then we will love God above all else, most specifically above ourselves. This same sentiment is found in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 39. Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Jesus isn't teaching hatred of mother and father. 
a son or daughter, what Jesus is teaching, is in comparison to our love for him, all other love is like hatred. Genuine Christianity, entrance into his messianic rule, results in death to self. Just as Jesus was going to die to bring about a fruitful harvest within the kingdom, those who want to follow after Jesus are also expected to die to themselves and to live for him alone. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul would say this most clearly in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this, how dead are we to self-will? How dead are we to self-rule? How dead are we to these desires and these priorities that we have in our life that have come into our lives because this is what the world says is most important. This is what the world communicates is how we find fulfillment and enjoyment. How dead are we to the things of the world as opposed to being alive to Christ? Dying to self is a lifelong practice. It doesn't happen at the moment of our salvation. We must continually, day by day, die to self-will and to self-rule and to submit ourselves to the authority of the messianic rule that has already been established by Christ. The phrase, hates his life, means that one has given his life over to Christ as an exchange for being a part of this messianic rule, this messianic kingdom that has come when Jesus has been glorified. To keep it means to keep it for all eternity. Now, Jesus gives an explanation of how this works. So number four in our line, serve me. Jesus says in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So there is this explanation of what it means to lose our lives and how we can keep our lives for all eternity. So the application is that we are going to serve Jesus. A disciple serves the master. To serve is to follow. To follow is to imitate. Just as Jesus followed the commands of the Father and served him, so are we to follow the Messiah and serve him. Salvation is not only affection for what Christ has done, but salvation is direction in serving him, following him, and imitating him. We are to live our lives according to this principle. We are to die to ourselves each day so that we can live for and live our lives under the Messianic rule of Christ. As we do this day by day, we authenticate our salvation. It gives evidence of our eternal life 
And by the way, it also is the means by which we are able to experience life in the fullest right here and right now. I think one of the great deceptions that exists within the Christian community is that if we give ourselves over to Christ fully, then we're going to be in some way disappointed by the outcome. We're going to have to give up all of those leisures and pleasures and toys that we enjoy so much. But the reality is this, the more we give our life to Christ, the more fulfillment we're going to have in this physical, temporary life that we live. That is proven to be true as we die to ourselves and as we experience a more intimate union with Christ. The more we die to self, the more we live for him. The more we live for him, the more enjoyment, the more intimacy, the more aware we are of this eternal union that we have with Christ, the promise of his presence, the fullness of his provision, the sufficiency of Christ that carries us through all the difficult days, we experience his peace and his joy and his presence to the fullest extent as we die to self and give our lives over for him. Now, there are two promises that Jesus makes in this verse. He says, number one, where he is, his servants will also be. Now, as we know that this is the Passion Week and that Jesus is about to die on the cross, Jesus is speaking about where he will be in heaven and that we as his servants, those who follow him and imitate him, we will be with him in eternity also. John 14.3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. As the disciples had to deal with the reality that Jesus was about to go away, and they couldn't imagine what that was going to look like, and how their lives were going to exist apart from the physical presence, well, Jesus not only tells them that I will send a helper to you, who will lead you and guide you, but you one day will also be where I am in heaven with the Father for all of eternity. Now, the second promise he makes is that he who serves him will be honored by the Father. And giving honor to an individual is a great experience for that individual. To be honored by friends or by family or by a church or by a civic group, an organization, an association, to be the employee of the month, to be the employee of the year, to be Time Magazine's person of the year. Those are great honors that give us a good pat on the back in this world, but none of those things can or will ever compare to being honored by the Father. When we stand before the Lord Jesus face to face, and he says, enter into my presence, well done, my good and faithful servant, there is an honor given to us by the Father that will exceed any earthly honor anyone could ever, ever receive. Jesus makes this incredible promise that if we serve him, we will be with him. And because we have served him, we will be honored by the Father. What a tremendous promise that these disciples and Christians throughout all time cling to that Jesus has given as a result of this inquiry by some unknown Greeks. 
Now the reality in this exchange, the reality that sets in to Jesus as he shares these words is this, verse 27a, now my soul has become troubled. That word troubled means great anguish. It means to stir up. It's the idea of mental and spiritual agitation. It's the same phrase that Jesus used when he encountered Mary and the depth of the grief and sorrow she felt at the death of Lazarus. And as she was in this authentic mode of sorrow and the crowd of artificial mourners came, Jesus said that Jesus was stirred up. He was troubled by what he experienced. There is great emotional intensity into the realization that Jesus has in his humanity, Jesus agonized over his death. Excuse me, Luke twenty-two forty-four. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter five, verse seven: In the days of his flesh, he offered up with prayers and supplications, with loud crying and tears, to the one able to save them from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Now, make no mistake about this. Jesus is not asking the Father to remove this cup from him. Jesus is just simply agonizing over the reality of his imminent death just a couple of days away. So there was great anguish, but there was also great certainty. Verse 27b, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. He isn't asking for there to be a change of plan. He's simply establishing what has already been planned and affirming that he very clearly understands that this is precisely the reason that he left his place in heaven, entered into the world that he created to fulfill God's eternal plan of redemption. Jesus has already said in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So the plan of redemption was set in eternity past, and the time for fulfillment is here. It has finally come. Jesus says, my hour has come, I must die. This is the very purpose that I have come for. So while Jesus has great anguish over the imminence of his death, he has great certainty that this is God's eternal plan, and this also has with it great glory. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The Father would be glorified through the Son in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. This is the third time the Father audibly speaking from heaven is recorded. The first time was at Jesus' baptism. The second time was at his transfiguration. And here, on the eve of his death, the Father speaks again and says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. There is this past glorification that has already taken place. The Father says, I have been glorified in all that you have done. I have been glorified in all that you have said. In every aspect of your earthly ministry, 
I, the Father, have been glorified through you. In this present sense, he says, I will be glorified again. I will be glorified through the cross. I will be glorified through the empty tomb. I will be glorified through your ascension. I have been glorified, and I will be glorified again. So we come now to the last section in our outline, number four, the reaction. Verse 29, says, The crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered, and others were saying an angel has spoken to him. So the reaction of the crowd is that they are confused. God has spoken. The crowd has heard something. Some say that it has thundered. In the Old Testament, thunder was often associated with God speaking. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, there was a great storm and there was great thundering. In other instances within the nation of Israel, God spoke and it was understood that God was speaking through the thunder. Others think that an angel had spoken to him. They heard a voice. They heard something that sounded like a voice, but they weren't able to make out exactly what was being said. Old Testament frequently spoke to people in the Old Testament, but both of these conclusions, that it was thunder or that it was an angel speaking to Jesus, are wrong. In response to Jesus' prayer that the Father be glorified, God sends a, a powerful message that confirms his approval of Jesus. The crowd has completely missed the message. Verse 30, Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Whether it was thunder, whether it was a voice that was misunderstood, whether it was a voice from the Father with great clarity, whatever has happened, the people missed the message. The message was intended to build their faith. It was to erase their doubt about what was going to happen. It confirms the plans of the Father to have the Messiah killed, as Jesus has just explained, but in their confusion, and perhaps in their hard-heartedness, they don't hear what the Father has said to the Son, and what Jesus has said is that this was not for my benefit, because I already know that the Father is glorified in me, but he has spoken so that you may understand this plan, so that your faith can be strengthened, so that you can have the same kind of affirmation about what is about to come as I do. They have missed the message. This will be more clearly illustrated next week as we look at the other half of this passage. But the reality is this. God is not silent. God is still speaking today. Sometimes God speaks in a small, still voice. Sometimes God speaks through an impression, through a dream, through a prayer. But I want to say that 99% of the time, God speaks through his word, but men are not listening. We seek to know him more deeply. We seek solution for the problems that we face. God speaks through his word, but we tend to turn to other things, and we completely miss the message. Well, God has spoken. The Son will be glorified, number one. This glory brings judgment. Verse 31a. Now judgment is upon this world. This refers to the worldly satanic system that exists. 
It refers to the world's priorities, their purposes, their values, their desires. Judgment is already upon the world. This judgment was initiated at the first appearance of Christ through his birth, continuing up to his current position, his eventual death, burial, and resurrection. The judgment has already taken place, but it is not yet fully realized. Now, his position as the Son of Man, the one who is the messianic ruler of God's spiritual kingdom, he is going to appear a second time, and he will usher in the final judgment for those who have rejected him in his first coming. So judgment has already been pronounced. It is not yet fully realized. But a day is coming when it will be fully realized, when the Son of Man comes to take his people home, and then judgment will be executed upon those who rejected him. Secondly, this glory brings victory. Verse 31b, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Satan will eventually be cast out. He has already been defeated, yet his influence has not yet ended. He has been given a limited rule in this world, but there will come a day when his rule will be completely eradicated and he will be cast out for all of eternity. The day will come when this victory will be fully realized, even though through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, it is completed it just isn't fully experienced. Thirdly, this glory brings redemption. Verses 32 and 33. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. John adds the commentary here, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So Jesus will be lifted up from the earth on the cross. He will be lifted up from the earth in his victorious resurrection. He will be lifted up from the earth in his glorious ascension. And so the plan of redemption will be complete, and salvation is available to all men. No one can be saved unless God draws them, and Jesus will draw all men to himself. Now, this isn't an invitation to universal salvation. It also doesn't indicate that Jesus is specifically drawing all men to him, and they have the ability to reject that draw, it means that Jesus is going to draw all men, men from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every race, from every village, Jesus is going to draw from all over the world people to himself. Men from every tongue and every tribe, not just the Jewish people, not just the nation of Israel, but from all over the world. The analogy of the kernel of wheat that dies when buried into the ground, bringing forth much fruit, is the idea that Jesus communicates here. Through his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, the establishment of his messianic rule, people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation are going to enter in to the eternal kingdom of God. You know, that's really good news for you and I today because we are like the Greeks. We are Gentiles who were previously excluded from the covenant that God had made, but through the eternal plan of redemption inaugurated by Christ 
in this time, you and I today have the privilege and the ability to be one of God's eternal children. Well, as we look at the continuation of this dialogue, it's recorded here in chapter 12, we'll see how the people maintain their confusion, and we will likely see why they were so ready to turn against him in just a couple of days, because he wasn't going to fit the mold they had of what they wanted their Messiah to be. Would you pray with me, please? Father, how we thank you for the truth that we have in your word. We thank you for the clarity that you have given us and understanding who Jesus was and why he came and what his coming has accomplished, not only for your eternal kingdom, but for us individually as the benefactors, the ones who are being included in your eternal kingdom. And I pray that as we think about the remainder of this passage and the confusion that exists within these people, that we would be mindful of the amount of confusion that still exists today about who you are, what you've done. We pray, Father, that you would teach us to treasure our salvation so much that we would willingly and continually die to ourselves so that we can live to you according to your plans and your purposes, fulfilling all that you've called us to do. We give you thanks for the vastness of your love. We give you thanks for the greatness of your grace and pray that we would walk in those each and every day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.